HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Yolele, the revolutionary African foods company. Learn more at yolele.com. This episode is brought to you by Just Egg. You can't have plant-based breakfast without a plant-based egg. You can get started with a free sample. Just head to ju.st slash hrn. This week on Meet and 3, we celebrate Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month with an episode about memory. I've always read and sort of approached cookbooks for more than the recipes. To me, they are full of narrative content and narrative value. So Malama Aina basically means to take care of the land. For us as Hawaiians, it's taking care of our older sibling. But I do remember like definitely feeling like self-conscious about it, like being the only one who kind of wasn't eating a sandwich and like didn't have a bag of goldfish or Lunchables. Listen to Meet and 3 wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone. Bienvenidos to another episode of Cooking in Mexico from A to Z on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Aaron Sanchez, alongside my beautiful mother. Sarita Martinez. And uh, we are very excited because we're going to we invite we invited an old friend, someone that we that we absolutely adore. Knowledge is just it just it's in every pore of this man. Of course, we're talking about Coleman Andrews, an internationally known food writer and editor. Is a senior editor specializing in food and lifestyle stories for 247wallstreet.com. Uh, he's also uh, the vice president. He was the vice president and editorial director of the dailymeal.com and co-founder and editor-in-chief of Sever Magazine. So he's won multiple James Beard Awards uh, for his Outstanding Cookbook of the Year. Also the MFK Fisher Distinguishing Writing Award. You can just go down the list. And he has authored nine books. So... You can just tell that uh, he's going to bring the he's going to bring the heat today, and uh, our subject is one that's very dear to my mom and I. We're going to be talking about the Valle de Guadalupe and the food and wine scene there. So, welcome, Coleman. We're excited to have you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. It's wonderful for me because I don't know a lot about that subject. For some reason, I haven't gotten to travel so much to Baja California. In the food scene, so mm-hmm. I'm here as an avid listener as well. I'm dying to learn. Okay, 
And oh, Colman, what was your first uh, interactions and encounters in, 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 in the Valle de Guadalupe in Baja California? When did you start going there? And uh, when did you fall in love? Well, it, it actually started before I ever went to the wine region. Uh, when I, I'm from Los Angeles, lived there uh, many years, about until I was about 50, which was about 100 years ago. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, uh, you know, when back in those days, when it was easy to get across the border in both directions, uh, I could wake up on a Sunday morning and around 9 a.m. I, I, in, in Los Angeles and I'd, I'd call my friends and I'd say, hey, you want to go to Ensenada or Tijuana for lunch? I'd say, sure. And we'd get in the car and about two and a half hours, three hours down there. And we'd have a nice meal and uh, we'd drive back in the afternoon uh, with, you know, some tequila in the back and, and uh, you know, and we'd, we'd be great. Uh, of course, that became <laughs> less and less and less possible as the border crossing coming back became more and more difficult. But so that, that was my first experience of the region. And the first winery I ever went to in the region was not in, in the Valle at all, but was Santo Tomas. In, uh, yep. in, uh, they had a, a, a facility in, um, uh, in Ensenada itself, and, um, or in Tijuana, rather, uh, itself. And, you know, that was the first winery in, in Baja. Uh, it dates from 1880-something. Uh, wow. And uh, long before there was wine inland, um, they were they were uh, making wine there, and uh, you know, well, if people don't realize when you talk about Mexican wine, they think, well, they just drink beer and tequila, you know. But uh, well, yeah, but the first winery in Mexico, I believe, I'm almost positive it was the first winery in the Americas ever. And wow! It, it was not in that region. Uh, it was in um, in uh, Guajira, about fifteen something. And the winery still exists. I'm sure it's been closed and, and opened again. Uh, 1597 in Coahuila and uh, in the interior. Uh, but um, the idea that the wine culture, obviously, as you know, it's, it's not it hasn't traditionally been a part of, of Mexican culture. Yep. Uh, it was it was the the uh, the Franciscans uh, who needed to have wine for mass. And uh, so they planted yep. vineyards and, and uh, you know, there's always been a little bit of uh, interest in wine, but not very much until. Probably, well, the first vineyards, as far as I know, in the Valle de Guadalupe were in the 1930s. Wow. Uh, and there were farmers from, from, from Europe that, that came there, and that's one of the things they planted. And obviously, the, the uh, climate is very well suited. Uh, it's a Mediterranean climate. Uh, so, yep. uh, and, and you yeah. have from, even though you're inland about 30 miles or so from the coast, uh, you have there's kind of an open uh, uh, leeway to the coast, so you get the coastal breezes. So in the southern part of the valley, especially, so you're not uh, it's not too hot. Although yeah. it, can be, it can get pretty hot. Well, Thomas Jefferson is incorrect for saying he was the first to plant grapes in the <laughs> Americas, right? Oh, yeah. No, thank you. Oh yeah. Um, but yeah. you said you said something very interesting, and I think for our listeners, you know, the Valle de Guadalupe has these salt quarries uh-huh. kind of yeah. around the area. So when you taste the wine, it ha- and especially in the front palate, it has a salinity that could be very abrasive for some people. That's especially it shows up for some reason in the white wines more yeah. than the reds, and maybe it's because maybe the more more of the tannin in the reds kind of overcomes that and don't notice it as much. But yeah, that that's a real uh, a real problem, and. Um, there's people that I, I don't mind the, the character. You, you have some wines from Italy, from the islands in Italy, for instance, uh, uh, the Tuscan coast that have some of that character for the same reason. Yeah. Yeah. And they started planting Italian varietals, uh, right, Coleman, in, in Mexico? They, they, have, they have everything. They, they have, I don't know how many varietals, but they have every Spanish, French, 
Italian varietal you can imagine. Yep. Uh, there, there was a, a guy, unfortunately now now deceased, uh, Antonio or Antoine Badan, whose family was Swiss, and he found an old vineyard of Chasselas, which is the main white wine grape of part of Switzerland, and he made wine from that. that that's now the the uh, the Badan uh, Mogar Badan. It's now called uh, Mogar, I think, at this Mogar uh, winery. You know, there was a, a wine that I used to love from the Valle de Guadalupe. That was it was a blanc de blanc that I think was sold to Conundrum. Do you know anything uh-huh. about that? Was it? A, it was a wonderful white wine. I, I don't. I wonder if it, it could have been from one of the bigger, older wineries like Monte Chanique or something. No, it wasn't. Oh, that, yeah, or El Cheto. No, no, but it wasn't that. It, it was a, a small winery. Okay. And it was <gasps> sold oh. and to the people who make conundrum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't know that. Well, in, but, but to answer your first question, when I first went yeah. to the IA was, was probably 2003 or 2004. Okay. And um, at, at that point, you know, now uh, I, I remember I met on that first visit, I met uh, Hugo da Costa, who is the most prominent winemaker and kind of inspirer of winemakers in the valley. They call him the Mexican Mondavi. Uh-huh. Oh, cool. And, and, he, um, and he told me at the time, he said, there, oh, yeah, there's like 14 wineries in the valley. Yeah. And I said, oh, that's great. And then when I was there in um, 2017, which is the second to the last time I was there, I was also there in 2019, but 2017, I counted signs driving around for 58 wineries and some people said no there's 100 wow and and, uh, and you know which which is great except that there's no water so it's kind of <laughs> yeah. a, kind of a difficulty but but when i first went there say about 14 15 wineries and the the food scene didn't exist there was one sort of quote unquote serious restaurant or baja mediterranean restaurant which is what they call the the cuisine now manzanilla yeah oh, yeah where manzanilla or Oh, yeah, oh, Laja, that's right. Yeah. Laja, which is Jairo uh, Teles, um, who uh, I think he still owns it, but he's more, he's in Mexico City now. He has a place called Mero Toro. I love that, yeah. yeah. That was part of, um, part of, uh, of Contramar. Yeah. Well, he, he's friends with her, yeah. With Gabriela. Yeah. yeah. And then, so, like, so for everyone that's listening, you know, so you basically cross the border through Tijuana. You mm-hmm. go above, you know, you go about 45 minutes, and the, you, the first real town you'll find is Rosarito. Right. Mm-hmm. And then that's yeah. kind of when you go to Rosarito, it's a cool little kind of beachy kind of vibe. Um, there's a good friend of mine named Antonio de Livier who just opened up a wonderful open air restaurant that you have to visit. I was just there two months yeah. ago. Yeah, and uh, and then you start going down the coast and then I guess, you know, you have little towns in, in, in dispersed and then you find yourself in Ensenada. Right. Which yeah. is kind of the big town. Right. Um, and then let's talk a little bit about what they're famous for culinary wise. Right. They make the best fish tacos anywhere in Mexico. I think that's what we can't debate that. Uh, and then you start seeing you start seeing these really serious chefs. Uh, our good friend Benito Molina and his lovely wife yeah. Solange, who have Manzanilla, yeah. which has yeah. been there for twenty years. Yeah. Uh, then you have chefs like Javier Placencia, who is a wonderful chef who has multiple yeah. restaurants uh, in Tijuana as well. And he's, and then you have chefs like Diego Hernandez. Who mm-hmm. is another fantastic chef who does yeah. really serious food? So, yeah. really great caliber chefs down there. Yeah. What are some of the food things that you, that really spoke to you uh, on your visits? Well, I, I, you know, one of the things that that I really, really, uh, well, I, I had I had two kind of epiphanies about the food there. One was when I first went to Laja, 
and I had a very good meal. Um, but I said, it's, it's kind of, uh, it, it doesn't taste, it doesn't seem very Mexican to me. It, it seems, you know, there, he made a uh, homemade pancetta and, um, <laughs> you know, and sauces rather than salsas and, uh, yeah. you know, and, and home baked bread instead of homemade tortillas. And, and I remember my first thought was, well, you know, why isn't he doing more quote unquote Mexican food? And then I started thinking, as I said, I'm from, from California and the big thing in California is a Mediterranean cuisine. And then I thought, well, it's the same climate here. And who has more of a right to Mediterranean cuisine than, than Mexico? More than, more than Alta California, as they used to call it does. Yep. You know? and, but, but then the, the other uh, real epiphany I had was um, on a much later trip after Javier Plasencia opened his place, uh, Finco, Finca Altosano, yep. which is a wonderful big property which has a coffee bar and a snack bar and all these different things and this serious restaurant. And I was sitting having lunch with him one day and I looked at the table and I said, okay, so there's wine made from Tempranillo from a great Spanish grape mm-hmm. that was made a few miles from here. There's olive oil from a few miles that direction. There's oysters that these wonderful oysters that, that come from the coast of, of Ensenada a few miles away. Uh, there is really good crusty, uh, Italian or, or French style bread, but there's also tortillas. There's also salsa. There's also, um, uh, birria. Uh, there's, yep. you know, this combination and they're all on the same table and they all go very well together. Isn't that crazy? That's, I mean, this is paradise. You know, you, you get you know, maybe my two favorite kinds of food would be like Italian and Mexican and, you know, you have them together and it's yeah. legitimate. It's not like somebody's trying to make phony fusion food. It's, it's historically, and climatologically, uh, absolutely authentic and, and real, and it should be that way. And it, it, that's one of the rare things. That- Mom? Well, I really resisted that because when I, I started, I, I spent a lot of time in Tijuana. My grandmother had a house there. Uh-huh. When I was a teenager, you used to go have carnitas on the way out to Ensenada. There was this great stand there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it mm-hmm. was, it, we used to go to Rosadito to have lobster with beans you know with refried beans oh yeah and it was yeah. very it was very different so when when i started going more recently and went to javier's place i said this is not mexican you know and and i was into mm-hmm. into the food of oaxaca and the food of yucatan and yeah, yeah. and it didn't yeah. it just it just seemed to me like it was blasphemy <laughs> you know and i didn't I, and i didn't understand the the situation until actually until i read your piece the other day Huh? Okay. I mean, I'm that much of a, a novice in that, this area. But, but you, you know, uh, Zarella, you and I were talking the other day about um, Lebanese influences and Arab influences uh, around Mexico. Not just tacos Arab, but, uh, but you mentioned some things that I hadn't heard of from other parts of Mexico that are clearly influenced from that part of the Mediterranean. And then you have things like, uh, you know, the food using olives in cooking, uh, like they do in Veracruz. Is is Spanish? It's from Spain. It's not uh, something that you would automatically associate with Mexico. There's always been all of these influences, and it's not to in any way denigrate the indigenous uh, ingredients and foods. But you know, um, I think it was Benito said something very interesting to me about the the. Uh, he said, you know, we have to go back to our roots in thinking about the food we make. And he said, what what single food is more Mediterranean than tomatoes? And they came from here. Yeah. Yeah. And also, and yeah, and you're absolutely right, Coleman. And you think about some other iconic um, dishes from down there. You know, you mentioned the oysters. Yeah. Uh, they're also really well known for 
uh, their tostadas, their seafood yeah. tostadas, yeah. and their cocktails, and their cocktails de, de, de mariscos, or like seafood cocktails. Yeah, and, and uh, yeah, all these. And the smoked tuna, you know, the smoked tuna, which is like fantastic. I don't know why we don't have it here in New York. They have these beautiful, you know, they have these pens. You've seen them off the coast of Ensenada. These where they raise the the uh, bluefin tuna, and they're they're raised. They're they're in effect swimming around wild, but they're enclosed in these yep. in these enclosures, and they harvest them there. The uh, the lobster, the Pacific lobster, the the uh, the uh, lagosta, and the abalone, and the abalone. Uh, and then they also and they also have the, the my one of my favorites the chocolate clams oh, the clam the, the chocolate almejas de chocolate yeah, which are amazing yeah. and how do they do them yeah. there how do they make them they they're, yeah they're raw usually in a, in a, in. yeah usually them raw although I think uh, I I think uh, Benito makes a sauce for them and uh, yep. you know and uh, but and then and the, these beautiful little spot prawns uh, mm-hmm. that I had another another good chef down there Drew Deckman who's an American from yep. Los Angeles. And he's uh, he has Deckman's restaurant, and he gave he served me these raw sliced uh, spot prawns. Wow! With a little lime juice and some chilies and things. And now, oh, man, it was one of the best things I'd ever tasted. You know? Yeah. And who else is that? Who is that? Our lovely friend Carolina, no? Who Karen. writes a lot? Uh, Karen Yan, who writes yeah, a lot uh, about um, yeah. Baja as well. So she's a great yeah. resource as well. Yeah, and she's the one actually. She did a lot of research. You talked about fish tacos, and yeah. you know, if you think about it, it's kind of unusual that you would have fried fish uh, on a taco. You you mm-hmm. have grilled fish or you know, uh, roasted or something like that. And she did this research, and she found out it's because there were in the 30s and 40s there were a lot of Japanese fishermen in Ensenada. Wow, and. And especially there's some that came from California when they started in the 40s, when they started locking up the Japanese population uh, in in these camps. Some people went across the border to stay away from that. And they started farms and they started uh, they they set up fishing, uh, fishing operations. Wow. And she found uh, she talked to people that said, basically, you fry the fish for Baja fish tacos because of tempura. Yeah. Because that was that inspiration. So that's another example of these influences coming in from elsewhere. You know, when I, when I was out in Outward Bound for Kids at Risk, I took Rodrigo <laughs> and uh, this young man that I was dating at the time with this biologist friends of mine for a tour of the Sea of Cortez. And, and, uh-huh. and we camped at uninhabited islands every day and we caught fish and, and it was and cooked. That You know, I even took some couscous. But anyway, we stopped at a place where there was a big, I forget what it's called, like a slice of earth going all the way down. We were with this biologist, friends of ours, Fulvio Cardi. Mm-hmm. And you could see uh-huh. all the seafood that had that had become extinct. Ah, wow. Because, you know, because, because the people would sit at the cor- corner at the bank and eat, you know, the seafood. And it was an amazing experience. Wow. 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 That's fascinating. And yeah, and as as we said, you know, you think about the winery, you think about the serious chefs that have, have set up shop there, mm-hmm. um, and it, and it's it's a very interesting place that people should definitely visit. It's right. you get a little bit of all those elements from Europe that you said, Coleman. Um, is there any other? Where do you think the, the food scene is going to continue to go, and the wine scene is going to go in the, in the future? The um, I, I mean, the interesting thing about the area even today, and this might change, but 
you know, there, there are people that say, well, it's, uh, there are real problems because, uh, the, actually the, the people I, I won't, I probably shouldn't mention her name, but there's a, a woman, uh, there who has a hotel and, uh, uh, she's very much an activist because what has happened as this has become an increasingly popular tourist destination uh, from across the border, but also from from parts of Mexico, is that besides all of the restaurants, there, there are new bars, there are discos now in the valley. And yeah. they, they make a lot of noise late at night. And she says, these farmers have to get up at, at four in the morning. And, and start working at five in the morning and they're kept awake, like right? they can hear this sound. So there, that's going on. On the other hand, it still is remaining um, very uh, unspoiled in a way. Uh, as you know, you've been there. There are basically two paved roads which go yep. the length of the valley. If you want to go crosswise, even to a nice hotel or a nice restaurant, you're on a bumpy, rutted dirt road. Which, yep. which is nice in a way because people can't go racing down in their in their land rover. Absolutely. Um, and but you know what what's happening is I mean there there's a um, a winery called um, what is it called de um, de cantos. Oh, the de, de, de cantos that has they do yeah. they have natural gravity. It's all gravity. Yeah, 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 gravity based. Yeah, I've been there. Up to this place. And it looks like it could be a showplace in the Napa Valley. It's a yes. beautiful architectural, but of course the, you have a dirt road going up there and, and like, like messy sort of yards around it and everything. But then this, this building is sitting there, beautiful thing. And, and the wines are really pretty good and they have a little snack bar and they, they have all this stuff, but, but um, that kind of thing uh, you're, you're seeing more and more elaborate hotels and, uh, and wineries but it still has a feeling of really being a real place. And you see, uh, you, you know, when you're driving around, you see people that are living in little tiny houses that are probably farmers. You see, um, you see sheep and cattle. Um, you see uh, plants that are not vines. Uh, it, it still is trying to remain a real place as opposed to a Disneyland uh, kind of thing. And, and I hope that it's able to maintain yeah. that. Talking about sheep, isn't there like a very well-known dish there? Called Borrego Tatemado. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Which is, um, I, I don't know if other places uh, serve it, but there's there's this place where everybody goes for breakfast called called Doña Estela. I think it's uh, La Cocina de Doña Estela. Yeah. And that's the specialty there. And people eat it. I mean, they come in at breakfast and, and they have these big plates. I sent you a photograph. Yes, of, uh, that, was a, that was a half order. Yeah. And it's, <laughs> it's basically... Like uh, barbacoa, which would be, you know, of those that, that don't know, it's it's basically this this roasted lamb uh, with a with a bowl of uh, a very intense broth mm -hmm. uh, on the side, and you know the lamb would be shredded. It's basically that, except that the lamb is crispy, very it's it's all crisp and, and charred every all the shreds, mm. and it's it's just delicious. And you wrap it up in tortillas, and you dip the tortillas in the broth, and and you see people, it's a big restaurant, and you see people eating that. Uh, and they also eat uh, have very good cornmeal pancakes, we found out. Uh, when, when, <laughs> the last time we were there, uh, we, we ordered everything on the menu, basically. And uh, I, was, I was there in, uh, in 2019, in October. Uh, Carolyn Carreño, that you mentioned, uh, mm -hmm. and Javier and Nancy Silverton, the chef from L.A., um, 
started this. Uh, I think they they've had three now of this festival, uh, basically yep. uh, Valle One and Food Festival, and uh, they didn't do it in 2020 for obvious reasons. I'm not sure if they're going to do it this year. Uh, I, I think maybe they'll do it in spring of next year. But yeah, I was I was invited to go. I was oh, invited, sure and, I, and I was and I was bummed out because of the pandemic. Yeah. They had to cancel it. But it's a lot of fun. You're right. Uh, there's a lot of legislation being championed by a lot of the local chefs and winemakers mm-hmm. to sort of preserve the ecosystem down there. Exactly. And I know, exactly. and uh, and that's a really positive thing. So if yeah. you if you're down there, and you want to help out, get involved a little bit and, and get informed. The other thing that they're known for there, besides that, are the flour tortillas. Yes, really You good. know, we, we, they have a lot of little stores that you go in and get flour tortillas, but they were telling me that they've consolidated everything into a big store right as you enter the Valle de Guadalupe, and they sell that wonderful cheese that they make. Mm-hmm. Did, yeah. did you ever visit that cheese place? I, I didn't, but I've had the cheese, yeah. It's, and there's several people. There's, there's goat cheese, and there's also uh, cow cheese. Yeah. Um, yeah, but again, they, that's another example. They, ha- they, have, uh, they have everything you want. I mean, <laughs> what more do you need to eat besides vegetables, uh, lamb and, and uh, fish and uh, olive oil, wine and cheese and bread and tortillas? So how would you describe the cheese? Is it like a ranch cheese? Yeah, it's, it's like, a, like a white, um, slightly, um, slightly acidic cheese. Um, it, it's like a little bit like you can imagine like a cotija that's softer. Yeah. Mm. That that's a great description. Yeah. But um, yeah, the the um, there there are a lot of issues there. The uh, there's no uh, clinic in the uh, or there's like a one room you know one doctor in one clinic. There's no ambulance there. There's no uh, no sewage system uh, which they're going to need if they keep uh, expanding. The water yeah. is an issue as as I mentioned and and. Uh, and, you know, there's all this building uh, on the coast uh, and they're drawing water from the watershed up there to, to put apartment buildings down by uh, down on the coast. So there, there's a lot of, of issues and it is very important that they maintain this unique uh, ecosystem, I think. Yep. And I'm, I'm really glad that there are these activists doing that. Well, they had the, the problem with the abalone that is like so expensive to find because the Chinese buy it all for those for those wedding gifts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. and then and then our our dear friend, who I call my chef dad, Jonathan Waxman, yeah. said that like it, back in the day in the seventies and eighties, abalone was considered bait. It wasn't something that was so so beloved like it is now. Every every restaurant that you went to uh, in the up until maybe the mid eighties or late eighties in in Southern California, you'd, you'd get abalone. They and they were big. They were mm-hmm. about let's say uh, six inches across. And then they'd pound them so they were about 12 or 14 inches across. And they'd mm-hmm. dredge them in cracker crumbs and fry them in butter and put lemon on it. And that's yeah. all. And that every restaurant had that. And now wow. the problem is that they became an endangered species and they stopped the commercial fishing in the States. I don't know about in Mexico. Oh. But, but you, can't, you can't fish them commercially. There's people raising them. But to get to that size that they used to be able to pull off the rocks all the time, to get to that size... There, there's like 20 or 30 years. Oh. Wow. So, so when you, that's why when you see the farmed abalone, it's usually about, uh, you know, three inches across or something. And that's yeah. probably five years old. Um, but abalone is great. But, yeah, the Chinese are, have, uh, have uh, bought most of that. And the same with the, with the sea urchin that the Japanese buy. Um, yes. What do they do with it? The Japanese? 
No, the, in, in Baja, the sea urchin, what do you... Tostadas. Tostadas. Tostadas, like at, at, you know, that famous cart in uh, in, uh, in Ensenada, uh, La Guerra Rense. Yeah. yeah, there you go. Yeah, you, you, that's one of the best things there is the sea urchin tostadas. Yeah, and it's also a great garnish if you have like fresh tuna, mm. tostada, and then you can kind of gild, gild the lily, yep. so to speak, with yeah. some beautiful erizo. Yeah. Yeah. And they, they call sea urchin erizo, which mm. is also called goosebumps. You know what I mean? So that's yeah. what it has that cute little kind of nickname, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. the beautiful sea urchin, which I love. I can't get enough of. It's great. And you make a sauce with it, too. You know, like yeah, you can make a compound butter or a compound butter. Yeah. And then, and then fold it into pasta. And there's nothing more divine with a little bit of lemon and breadcrumb. Oh, that's making me hungry, Coleman. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. I think I had like a like a risotto at that restaurant Mero Toro in, uh, in Mexico City mm-hmm. with sea yeah. urchin. Could could that be? Yes, that makes sense. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I love sea urchin. Yeah. As you know, it's a very strong flavor, and some people don't like it because it, it has an iodine flavor, but, uh, but I, I love it. I remember, Mom, we went with our good friend Anita Lowe when she had uh, Anissa in New York City, and she, and she made a flan with sea urchin, mm. and the texture was so ob- obscene. You felt naughty. Yeah. Having this thing, well, you had a- you felt, you felt <laughs> naughty because your head was always there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I, uh, yeah. So yeah, sea urchin is wonderful. I mean, you got to really, you know, think about when you're planning a trip down there. If you really, I mean, it's you get all the elements of Napa with great Mexican right. food. Exactly. The people are really amable and really sweet. And it still has that little sort of beachy kind of hippie vibe in different parts. Yeah. And, you know, you, you mentioned the, the open air place uh, that I think you said your friend had in, in Rosarito. Yeah. And those are, there, there are more and more of those. In fact, as you know, uh, Benito and Solange have one uh, in, the, in the Valle called Silvestre. Yep. And they call them uh, campestres. And yeah. The campestres are these, they're open air. And at uh, Silvestre, there's no electricity. There's no gas. It's a big yep. uh, wood oven, basically, and wood grill and everything. They, they bake bread uh, underneath the grill with the radiated heat that comes down. And, uh, and they do everything. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's really amazing. Of course, you have to have nice weather, but they're only open part of the year. But, but when you sit out there under these trees, these old oak trees, and you have this wonderful food that comes right off the grill, uh, you know, uh, pork loin, tostadas, and... and uh, Birria, uh, not birria, but uh, just like roast lamb tacos and things like that. And you just you you just mentioned so that my dear friend, who is a big personality, his name is Antonio de Livier. And if uh, you haven't gone to his place, no, it's, it's recently new. It's called La, La Media Corriente, okay. uh, Amudadora Rosarito. So it's kind of like he has a big sort of pit in the middle of the restaurant. It's opener. So if you have a chance, yeah. I got to plug my good friend uh, Antonio de Livier. Sounds wonderful. But I think that a beautiful hotel just opened there. I forgot what it's called. It starts with a B, like Bruma, maybe? Or something like that? Yeah, Bruma. Yeah. It is Bruma. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was there before the hotel opened because they have a, they have a winery and they have a restaurant. But before, before the uh, hotel or restaurant opened, I was there uh, in 2017. And they had some uh, sort of guest houses. And I was able to stay there for a few days. It's a beautiful property. And uh, the hotel is supposed to be magnificent. And the restaurant, our friend Jonathan Waxman said, 
was really one of the best meals he had down there. It was at the restaurant. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody's recommending it. Yeah. So I don't know who the chef is. I think there's a restaurant that is called Origenes or, oh man, I, I'm going to remember the name, but it was a beautiful restaurant. There's a good friend of mine that I, that I, I met, a gentleman named Victor. Uh, I'm going to figure out exactly what, where his winery is, but he's a young guy. Right. And he actually, I was telling my mom about him. He, he used to do charraria. So yeah. he used to like, like do horse shows. Yeah, as well, yeah, yeah. and um, so maybe what we, you can do is we'll get, we'll put well, I'll give you the information. You can go onto sure. my mom's website, yeah, uh, sure. dot com, mm -hmm. and then we'll post it for you guys. That's uh, great. At some point, yeah, um, yeah. The, the the other place down there that's that's really good is uh, La Esperanza. La Esperanza. That's uh, Miguel. He used to be called Miguel Angel Yaques, and now he's Guerrero, which is part of his name too. Um, but uh, uh, Miguel Angel. Uh, has a place in in uh, Tijuana called La Carencia. Mm -hmm. It's very good too. And he loves. He he does all these uh, a lot of smoked marlin and smoked mm. fish tacos, smoked uh, uh, smoked you know again tostadas and things like that. When you mentioned Carencia, you know Lori, our friend, our dear friend, has mm -hmm. built this amazing home in in Colorado. I mean, it's so uh -huh. beautiful. And they called it La Querencia. And I said, what is that? You, why are you gringos always appropriating, you know, names yeah. like that? Because <laughs> they're supposed to be like your safe place or, yeah, sure, you know, sure. the yeah. comfort zone. The sanctuary. Absolutely. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Yolele, a revolutionary African foods company based in Brooklyn, New York. Yolele was founded by Senegalese chef, activist, and cookbook author Pierre Thiam. Yolele creates income opportunities for smallholder farming communities, supports their sustainable farming practices, and shares Africa's ingredients and cuisines with the world, starting with Fonio. Fonio is a delicious, nutrient-dense, gluten-free ancient West African grain. Fonio is also drought-resistant, so it's good for the planet. Yolele is creating a market for Fonio and other African crops grown under resilient farming systems to foster a more biodiverse, drought-tolerant landscape across West Africa. Try Yolele's Fonio, quick-cooking Fonio pilafs, and new Fonio chips boldly flavored with the ingredients and flavors of West Africa. Sign up for their newsletter for recipes, notes from the field, and culinary discourse, and get a free bag of Fonio with your next order of $32 or more. Learn more at yolele.com. That's Y-O-L-E-L-E dot -E -E com. Just Egg is now the fastest growing egg brand in the United States. Bring more plant-based consumers in your doors with easy-to-use Just Egg. You can get started with a free sample. Just head to ju.st slash hrn. That's ju.st slash hrn. Made from plants, Just Egg is a better egg for you and for the planet. It's healthier with no cholesterol and less saturated fat and it's more sustainable. Just Egg uses less water and generates fewer carbon emissions. Most importantly, 
it's delicious. For our listeners who operate a food service establishment, you can get a sample for free. Head to ju.st slash hrn. That's ju.st slash hrn. Just Egg makes a delicious plant-based addition to any menu. It's available as a liquid scramble. Great for omelets, frittatas, stir-fries, and French toast. There's also a frozen pre-baked folded version that's ideal for filling breakfast sandwiches or topping salads. Chef Jose Andres calls Just Egg mind-blowing and Bon Appetit says, It's so good, I feel guilty eating it. Put the fastest-growing egg brand on your menu. Get a free sample of Just Egg for your restaurant at ju.st hrn. Coleman, uh, one of the things that we love to do here on our podcast, Cooking in Mexican from A to Z, is... Uh, keep people informed on what your projects are. What do you have working? What's new? This is time your time to be shamelessly plugging anything that you <laughs> that you like. Yeah. Well, I, I wish I, I wish I had more to plug right now. I'm um, I'm I'm very busy, but I'm uh, working for oh, this uh, website called Twenty Four Seven Wall Street, uh, which has a, a channel called Twenty Four Seven Tempo, uh, which does a lot of food and and uh, lifestyle stories. And I'm working as an editor and sometimes writer for them. That's my day job. Um, and then I'm working, actually, I'm working with a chef uh, in Los Angeles on his book. I, I'm not supposed to talk about who it is because yeah. it's kind of behind the scenes, but um, a very good, very interesting chef who's very, very committed to um, the history and culture of the food that he cooks, which is what interests me a lot. Wow. Uh, so I'm, I'm working on that too. And then I'm Actually, just started trying to to write some uh, some fiction again, which I haven't done for a long time. So we'll see how that works out. I can't. Uh, I'm not sure where that's going. Um, and and meanwhile, you know, like everyone, I think uh, during these these last year and so and, and year plus, because I've been home a lot and I've been uh, have not been traveling and I'm uh, been cooking a lot and drinking a lot. And, uh, and you know, where, where is home for you, Coleman? And, and do you have a website or an email? I live in Connecticut, uh, Riverside, Connecticut, which is uh, Greenwich, just over the New York state line. Um, and I used to commute. It's commuting distance in New York City. And I used to go into the city every day. But again, I haven't done that for more than a year. And I don't think I will anymore because the company I work for now has decided to go completely remote, even even when we're able to, to, uh, to travel again. Wow. So And can, pe- and can pe- and people can send an email to you? Where, where can they do that, Coleman? Uh, the best address would be Coleman without any C O L M A N Andrews at yahoo.com. Right. So we have the private word. So just to so, sort of sum up, uh, I feel like we haven't covered the food yeah, with specific dishes, you know, enough. What would you say are some of the most traditional dishes? And, and for, were, are there any people who are writing about it so people could get recipes? Or do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I mean, it's hard to talk about traditional dishes there because most of the food is new, you know, from the last uh, 15 years or so. Um, I, I mean, you know, some of the food, actually, I, I had a dish. I was just thinking about this. I was looking at some notes of mine, and this wasn't in an article I wrote, I don't think. Maybe it was. But um, at a restaurant, which I'm not even sure he's still involved with, but uh, Javier, we mentioned Javier Pacencia, his family owns a restaurant, uh, one of many restaurants they own in Tijuana called uh, Villa Saberios. Yeah. And I had a dish there that I said was like the definition of 
the, I guess what they now call Baja Med or Baja Mediterranean, yep. which a lot of the chefs don't like that term. And I understand because you don't want to be characterized by some slang like that. But but uh, it was a dish of little baby octopus. Uh, I mean, a, a, a few inches long, like in in Italy, they call them moscardini. Uh, mm. They're they're literally two inches long, maybe. And this cooked with with a, in a sauce of, of red chilies and garlic. And it was on top of a, a puree of garbanzos. And then there was a, par, a parsley pesto. And then there was yogurt around the edges. Oh, my God. And then tortillas. Oh, oh, my God. <laughs> it was it was a crazy dish. I mean, if you think about the, you say yeah. none of that goes together. But it worked so well. And it had all the flavors, again, of the Mediterranean and of Mexico because of the chilies and the tortillas. In the garbanzos. Well, you know, I one of the that. things that you said that that was so insightful mm -hmm. was that we were talking about a particular chef here in New York who's an Anglo making Mexican mm -hmm. food, really, you know, doing everything, has making his own masa and everything. Mm -hmm. And then you told me that it was funny how Enrique uh, oh. of uh, what was the name of the Olavera, Olavera. Enrique Olavera. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, from Cosme, could take anything and make it taste Mexican. And this other yeah. chef could have all the Mexican stuff, and it still right. would not exactly. change Mexican. Exactly, exactly. And it, it's, it, I, I told uh, I told Enrique that I said, you know, this this tastes and smells uh, like, like I'm in Mexico. And I go to this other guy's place, who we won't mention, and and you know, it has all the right ingredients, but it's it's just different. It's not the same thing. Yep. Uh, and I, I that's not to say that you can't that you have to be Mexican to cook Mexican food or you have to be no, look, you know, at Ray, look at Rick Bayless. Rick Bayless is, is a good example. Yeah. yeah. And um, D but Diana he, Kennedy, Diana Kennedy. Right. But as you know, those are two people that have devoted their lives basically to to studying uh, Mexican food in a way that people who eat Mexican food every day don't need to do. They don't you know, they don't need to study. They know what they like. They know what what they eat in their region. They don't care what somebody eats in, in another part of Mexico, probably. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, they, they they eat. They know what they, they do. But these people that come, and I always thought that's my own books, when I've written about, about Spain or Italy or something, I've, I've said, you know, that's an advantage I have in a way. I didn't grow up with this food, so I see it from the outside. But then I can, I can look much more broadly, maybe, than people that have had that food all their lives that see no reason to go beyond what they know because they know it very well and it satisfies them completely yeah and that's precisely why my mom had chefs and cooks from bangladesh <laughs> and then had dominicans working during the day because sure. she was worried that she had too many mexicans in the kitchen they would change her food right mom and they did and they did yeah. do, do you know the, do you know jeffrey pilcher the the man who wrote planet taco and que viva los tamales no, I don't. Oh, oh it was, it was, he's an amazing historian of Mexican food. Yeah. And when I first opened the restaurant, he came in with this paper he had done comparing the cooking of Susana Parazuelos, Patricia Quintana, my cooking, and Diana's and Rick's. And he said, you know, Americans going to Mexico and want to be so respectful of the traditions and, and, and do the food exactly like they do in, you know, in the still mm -hmm. towns. And Mexicans, you know, are used to the food and they'll just put something that doesn't really go there yeah. with, you know, with, with no qualms. Right. And I think that's what you're talking mm -hmm. about, no? An interesting point. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, it's, it's great when, when Rick, for instance, uh, if he's making a mole and he takes all the individual ingredients and roasts them 
separately and blends them in a very precise way. But and then I remember uh, Carolina Carreño saying one time she laughed and, and she said, you know, my my uh, I think she has a, an aunt or a, a grandmother in Mexico City said she opens a jar when she's making mole. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exa- <laughs> exactly. And it's, it's very good, you know, work smarter, not harder. You know what I yeah, mean? Exactly. <laughs> totally. Exactly. Well, this has been this has been awesome. Um, you yeah, know, this you. is sort of our love letter to Baja California, to the Valle de Guadalupe. For yeah. all of you that haven't had a chance to vi- visit that, that part of Mexico, it is an absolute gem. Yeah. I encourage it. And like you said, you know, you can cross the border. Sadly, the, the crossing back is probably takes about two hours. So I don't want to dissuade yeah, people. But, but, but uh, yeah. if, you're, if you're smart about it, you know, there's an app that tells you which of the border crossings, how long yeah. the, the, rate, the wait is. And if you plan, maybe you leave really early in the morning or you leave in the middle of the day. You know, I, I've done it recently in the last few years in, in an hour, something like that. And it's worth it, believe me, to go yeah. be able to go down there and have this experience. And also visit all the fantastic food trucks in Tijuana that are changing oh. the the food, you know, in, oh. in the United States. Well, I, I, yeah. I mentioned to you the Marisco Ruben, yep. which is which is just unbelievable. And I mean, it's uh, the, the food there and, and they're from Sonora, but uh, again, seafood. But um, these uh, these sort of grilled tacos, and uh, I mean, it's, it's really extraordinary food. Well, thank you so much, Coleman, for taking the time and and participating. And uh, we just we we adore you. We think the world of you. You have you're such a you, you have such a, a diverse and, uh, and and sort of broad palate that really adds a lot of a lot of texture and flavor to anything that you research and write about. Oh, so thank you. Thank you. Uh, yes, we're really delighted. And, and again, our, our, our guest has been Coleman Andrews. Uh, you know, please reach out. We'll have some information on how you can engage with him. Uh, we've been talking about Valle de Guadalupe and cooking in Mexico from A to Z on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Aaron Sanchez. And I'm Sarela Martinez. Muchísimas gracias. Thank you for joining us today. Cooking in Mexican from A to Z is powered by Simple Cast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without your support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Central.